All right, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 9. You may recall last week that I said verse 35 is, is a hinge verse. It's, it's the closing bracket on a section that began way back in chapter 4, that the summary statement uh, that Jesus went throughout their villages teaching and healing, uh, that that serves to let you know that you have now reached the conclusion of this major section of the gospel. And now, at the same time, it's going to serve as the pivot, the, the hinge, I keep using different metaphors, and he's going to be talking about the, the mission that he has for his followers, for his apostles, and then through them, us. So let's turn and we will read verses 36 of chapter 9 through verse 4 of chapter 10. Matthew, the Lord's apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. When he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, even this passage. Grant that we would give ourselves to it wholly. Thank you for giving yourself to us wholly. We ask that in these few moments that we would indeed be encouraged and convicted as the need may be. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. What did Jesus come to do? Usually we answer that question with, he came to, to give his life as a ransom. He came to save sinners or, or whatever. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that what Jesus came to do is, is multifaceted. He, he came to accomplish a lot of things at the same time. Of course, chiefly, he came to do what only he could singularly do, which is 
to be our mediator, to, to take our place, to fulfill the law of God perfectly, and then to, to die and, and bear the penalty for our disobedience, only he could do. But did you know that a huge part of his earthly ministry wasn't just fulfilling all the righteousness that he had to do in order to die in our stead. It wasn't just proclaiming the news that the kingdom had come, but in another aspect of his ministry, he was teaching the disciples to become the apostles. A key purpose of his three-year ministry was to prepare the apostles to establish and lead the church. And so this mission of Christ is on full display in these opening verses. What did Christ come to do? How does he do it? And then what should our attitude and response be in accordance And so I want to work through this quickly because it's communion and I want to get to the Sunday school class. I want you to know, first of all, that it says in verse 36, he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them. So the mission is motivated by compassion. God sent his son because he loved the world. That point of compassion is easy to say. Have you ever been around godless, wretched rabble? It is hard to feel compassion. It is. You you look around and you see people who've made an absolute train wreck of their lives, much of it by their own life choices. And it is really hard to feel Compassion. Instead, we oftentimes feel disgust, abhorrence. I will be honest, there were times when I was a chaplain that I would go into a room where where such immorality and debauchery was taking place that I felt like I needed to take a shower when I left. And and in those moments, I, I had a glimpse of what the Pharisees must have felt like because they were, they were better than those people. And those people were, were rabble. But our Lord looks at the, the masses and he doesn't focus on their life choices. He doesn't focus on their, the messes they've made. He doesn't look on their filth. He looks on them as people in desperate need of help. So, this compassion of the Lord, I want to invite you and encourage you and challenge you. When you see the teeming unwashed masses, what is the attitude of your heart? Is it something that imitates Christ, or is it something that imitates the Pharisee? Do we really understand, we, we, we cognitively grasp that Christ will save anyone wherever they're at, and we, we proudly proclaim the good news of the gospel is that he saves you where you're at, but he doesn't leave you where you're at. 
but you understand that part of his compassion with seeing them in their mess and in their distress involves entering into it to pull them out. Do we sit along the shoreline waiting for them to come out or do we go in for them? That's the essence of our mission. So, compassion. In this it says he has compassion specifically because they were harassed and helpless. This is an allusion to Ezekiel 34 where the people of Israel are are likened as a flock of sheep that have been entrusted to shepherds. And the shepherds, instead of tending and caring for the flock, have, have simultaneously abused and neglected. So they're exploiting the sheep themselves. They aren't stopping predators from taking them. Nor are they arbitrating between them, and so the bullies in the mix are having their way. And so when Matthew says that Jesus has compassion on the masses because they are harassed and helpless, Jesus has a level of indictment against those who were entrusted to provide the very thing that is lacking. The people were in desperate need of help. They were in desperate need of a shepherd, but there was none over them. And so Jesus, when he says to petition the Father for workers, it's to rectify the problem that's in place because there was no shepherd over them. In other words, the people need shepherding. And so, Jesus describes the need, and in his compassion, he describes the opportunity. Helpless, vulnerable crowds, and in that, you see a plentiful harvest of of souls as, as there are lives ripe to hear the news of repentance and reconciliation and the restoration of all things. But someone has to go because the workers are few. And that leads us to the second point. In verses 37 and 38, listen again to what Jesus says. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Understand, this is the second point. Jesus is indicating that he will not complete the mission by himself. We oftentimes think that when God works, he works immediately, spontaneously, almost magically, we, we use the word supernatural, but what we mean is he just pulls it out of thin air. And Jesus, the, the Lord of life himself, is attesting by this very statement that the bringing in of, these, of this harvest is more than a one-man job. 
this is a profound statement. It's a profound admission. And, and Paul is going to reference it later when he says that we are co-laborers together with God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, the one who came to do what only he could do, has in the decree of God given us a task because the Lord wants to create a new humanity and in the creation of this new humanity, it would not do for it to be immediately, spontaneously, supernaturally put together by the Lord himself, but rather just as Adam and Eve were to fill the earth through ordinary means, so too does the kingdom spread through the work of his people. Third, to drill down a little bit harder, the activity of his followers is an essential component of the mission assigned to Jesus. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5.3, we learn that in that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. Though he is free to work without, above, against them at his pleasure, what, what that statement in our confession is saying is it's acknowledging things like this. That our Lord doesn't need us because he's sovereign and omnipotent and he's omniscient and he's omnipresent. So, there's a sense in which the Lord does not need us at all. But yet, in accordance with his will, based upon his own inscrutable, holy, righteous judgment, he has decreed that his children, the followers of his son, are integral components of the plan to build his kingdom throughout the earth. So, this is an inspiring passage, isn't it? That Jesus is admitting the world, the world, not just Israel, the world is ripe for harvest. The workers are few. Pray that the Lord would send them. It's awesome. But understand this we get a glimpse here of how the Lord rules over the kingdoms of men, how he rules and he builds up in his church, and that is by way of delegation. Are you familiar with the concept of delegation? It's when you are in charge of something and you have authority and your authority is not just the authority to get some task done, but your authority is to tell other people and empower other people to do something that attends to the goal, the larger goal that you have. So when we delegate, we are assigning authority to accomplish a task in our stead. And that's exactly what Jesus 
does here. Now, I love that what Jesus does here is he tells the disciples to pray that the Lord would raise up workers for the harvest. Pray. And then what does he promptly do? Assigns them to go work the harvest. Okay, so you guys are the answer to my prayer. In fact, Luke, Luke 6 specifies that, that before assigning the 12, he prays all night. So the Lord has prayed, and, and, and the Lord has many followers. In, in fact, Luke 6 records the mission of the 12 here, but a few chapters later in chapter 9 of Luke, he records the mission of the 72. Jesus had a lot of followers. But right now, he's going to commission the 12 to go out and start fulfilling the missional requirement of the kingdom and multiplying Jesus' efforts to convert the masses. And it's not just throwing people out to the wolves. This is a part of their training. In the normal rabbinical discipleship process, the, the student, the disciple, it was his mission in life to basically memorize the sayings and teachings of the teacher, to memorize and to memorize their way of life. But Jesus here turns that whole model on its head. They've been with him for months at this point, likely. And Jesus is now sending them out. And the Gospels all make clear that at this point, the disciples didn't have much of a clue. I mean, you'll, take, you'll read these historical, critical Accounts of the Bible, oh, it's just early church propaganda, blah, 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 you know. You don't write propaganda. The Nazis don't write propaganda to make Hitler look like an idiot. Okay, the North Koreans don't write propaganda to make Kim, the, the, the Kim Jong-un look stupid. But consistently, the gospel writers are showing that the disciples at this point didn't get it. They keep bumbling and stumbling and messing up. All this is to show that God was supernaturally leading them, and it's true, it's not just propaganda. And so the Lord appoints these 12 disciples. In verse 1 of chapter 10, they're called the 12 disciples. In verse 2, they're called the 12 apostles. The, the, don't think apostle in what it would later become in the full-blown sense after Pentecost. But nonetheless, the core basically is the same, that they're going from being a learner to being a commissioned messenger. And he empowers them with authority to work wonders and he names them by twos. Mark 6 specifies that they went out two by two. And so though Matthew doesn't specify that here, you get that two by two-edness in just how the cadence of the names are read off with an and between every, every two. So this is likely the two by two that went out. Okay. So this is part of the educational process of Jesus to, to equip his followers to later establish the church. When we 
say that we believe in the apostolic church, what we're confessing is that Christ, who's the chief cornerstone, built the church through his apostles. And he chose frail, imperfect, finite people to be in the foundation of it. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this this treasure in jars of clay. We're frail and we're prone to to mistakes and sin and error and, and just mortality. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so these apostles here are going to now be sent out to minister in Jesus' name as a, as a trial run, so to speak, of the ministry they're going to have in just a couple short years. But in so doing, they're operating in the Lord's name, and that gives us a glimpse of how the Lord works as the Lord of the church, the head of the church, to lead his people. The Lord selected from amongst his followers, selected 12 to become apostles. And these 12 apostles established the church through their own ministries. And these 12 appointed elders and deacons. And so this is why in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the apostle Paul says, that which you've heard from me in the presence of, of many witnesses, you, Timothy, entrust to faithful men so that they can in turn entrust to others. So what I want you to understand is that all church government flows delegatedly from Jesus himself. Jesus rules by way of delegation, and it's for the purpose of providing the shepherding that was lacking in verse 36 of chapter 9. That led to the state of affairs where the people were harassed and helpless. So we exist as officers of the church to ensure that you are not harassed and helpless. That you are taken care of. That you are nurtured in the faith. That you are instructed. That you are provided adequate discipline. Correction. And yes, even exercise. You guys need some exercise. And I don't mean that running around a ball field and tearing your calf type exercise. I I mean the purpose of our existence exercise. Guys, the Bible teaches us that each of us has been gifted by the Spirit to in some way or measure help the whole body attain to maturity for the well-being of us all. Okay, so you were given a gift for a purpose. And your little bit of the purpose contributed with with his little bit of the purpose and her little bit of the purpose and his. and And then you have a church family together and then you have pretty soon we're doing a big purpose. The masses are around us. Some of them come into our church almost weekly. Do we snag them up? Not to harass or to take advantage of the fact that they're helpless. 
but to offer them the thing that Jesus comes to give. Life. Abundant life. And in a world of confusion, of chaos, where we don't even know what a boy and a girl is anymore, that you can have real, real belonging and a real place. And if you're aimless, Jesus has a mission for you. A little piece of one, even if it's that, but, but it's integral, it's important. And we can't be all that we can be until you do the part that you were meant to do and be. That's what we need. So let's exercise that obedience muscle and let's start doing it. You don't got to be full seminary trained. These, these apostles were bumbling just, just screw-ups half the time. And Jesus sends them out. Because you never learn until you start crawling. And then after you've crawled for a little while, you're going to start walking. And then after you've walked for a little, guess what you're able to do then? Run. It's actually a model of training. It's called the crawl, walk, one model. (laughs) And it makes sense. And that's what the Lord does here. He's starting that process. You guys have seen me. Now it's time to start doing one thing that I have to comment on because I read it in a, in a commentary and it was angering. So we live in a world where the consensus is to obliterate the creational distinctions that God made. And to obliterate those assigned roles. And so one of the fruit of this is to deny that the Lord in his wisdom has assigned that in the church that men lead the church. And so I read in a commentary that Jesus picking 12 men to be his disciples, or to be his apostles, was not indicative of any, of any attempt to set a precedent. That he was simply accommodating a patriarchal, misogynistic culture that wouldn't have tolerated a female in that role. Are you kidding me? Jesus, I mean, we're only nine chapters in. Jesus takes such, almost, it's like he's taking exquisite delight in in, in throwing off social mores. It's like he thrills in overturning social convention. So he, 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 is, he throws aside every social convention, but we're going to suppose that when it comes to this, suddenly, oh, that's, that's, that's too, too much. I mean, he, it's like he, he so antagonizes them with his, with his continual disregard for their social norms that it's, it's almost like he's trying to get killed, which, of course, he was. Okay, guys, that was the joke. But why would he have stopped? Of course not. And then to suggest, and they actually implicitly accuse Jesus of wrongdoing because they say that it's a moral issue that 
that women are to be given full accord in the sense of they should be allowed to be ministers and rule in the church, that a woman could have just as well rightly been an apostle as, as one of these 12. Okay, so, so now you're saying that it's a moral issue and out of fear for some social convision, Jesus cowed away from doing the morally right thing? Do, do, do you hear that? Do you hear what you're saying? Folks, check this out. Here's the bottom line fact. God loves women. He made lots of them. Okay? Jesus and his ministry was absolutely dependent on the role of women. In fact, we learned that his ministry was largely funded by wealthy women. Wait a minute. How did women get wealthy in a world that was so... Oh, be quiet. Don't ask those questions. But largely funded by wealthy women. Jesus is not discounting women and their role. The first people to witness the resurrected Christ are who? Women. But the fact of the matter is, is that as a creation ordinance, God made man to rule in the home and to rule in the church as his people. Okay? So I'm going to just real quick turn to you men. Men, you have an assigned task in your home. You are to be the head of the house. You need to be acting in accordance with the gravitas of that position to provide, to protect, to lead and guide your family. And in the church, I'm only going to do a minor scolding. But we have about 125 men here. We should have about 125 people ready to help out in positions of leadership. We should not have six or seven men nominated out of 120. Guys, pursue maturity. There's a great mission out here. And we can't do it as long as we flounder in immaturity. Grow. Flex those muscles. Practice. You may fail. You may fall on your face, but so what? It's the trying that matters. There's a world that's dying. We need your work. We need your faithfulness. We need your help. You can do it. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this passage of Jesus informing us that we have a role to play in the fulfillment of his mission. Lord, thank you for appointing 12 apostles to establish your church, to set a precedent, to set an example. Lord, you are great and good. Grant that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers. That we would exercise the gifts that you have given to us for the building up of your body. That we would look with compassion on the masses and that we would be energized by the same spirit that energized our Lord. For his sake we pray it. Amen.